Hey, everybody. Listen, what a journey this has been. Let me start by giving a shout out to those of you who are watching in our San Jose campus and the rest of you who have joined us across the country and across the world. What a journey this has been. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know we've been inside of our Explore God series wrestling with some of the tough questions, and we haven't just been doing it alone. We've been doing it in partnership with 175 Christian communities all across the Bay Area and beyond. It's been so exciting. Listen, uh, here are some of the questions that we wrestled with. Does life have a purpose? Is there a God? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Is Jesus really God? And last week we looked at the question, is Christianity too narrow? So if you missed any of that teaching, please just go to our website. It's all there. You can revisit it as much as you need to. And by all means, share it with family and with friends whom you think it will be helpful. Also, uh, those messages are recorded live at our Ridwood City campus. They are also available on YouTube by the same titles. Now, if you'd like to further your explorations, uh, then I want to suggest two things. One, a number of months ago, I taught a series called Back to the Basics, where I covered some of these questions, but some other nuances that I didn't get to do in this series. Go check that series out. Also, uh, we have a portal to explore God, to the ultimate explore God. There's tons and tons of information and resources for you to continue to function as small groups, those of you who are working inside of your small group context, uh, and to grow individually. So, there you have it. Let's keep learning together. All right. Today's uh, question is, it's really a two-part question, is the Bible reliable and can I know God personally? So let's get started by reading this passage. Paul writes this passage. He's maybe weeks before he will be beheaded for his faith, put to death for his faith in Jesus Christ. And he writes to the young man that's going to really take over for him uh, and he says, here's how you be a transformative figure in the world. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Here's what Paul writes. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. You see, God uses it, Scripture that is, to prepare and equip His people, that's all of us, to do every good work. And there ends the reading. So today we're organizing this teaching around the basic question, is the Bible reliable and can I know God? But can I ask you a third question? And it's really going to frame how we approach those first two questions. And here it is. Can God know you personally? Do you know that the God of, the creation, the, the God of creation, who we encounter through the person of Jesus Christ, wants to know you personally? At the very, as a matter of fact, the reason that you, one of the reasons that you were born was so that God could uniquely love you and be loved by you. I was talking to a young man uh, maybe a month ago who's really having some struggles in his life. And I said to him, listen, young man, here's the deal. You're the only you in all of eternity. God only made one of you. 
Uh, before you came about, there was not a you. After you leave, there's not a you. That means that God has put something in you that the world cannot get from anywhere else. And it also means that you have a unique place in God's heart. There's a hole in the heart of God. It's in the shape of you, and only you can fill it. So the real question that I want you to wrestle with today is can God get to know you personally? He sure do want to. As a matter of fact, God has gone through enormous sacrifice over the centuries to make it possible, crawling through the centuries just to get to know you and to be known by you. There are two primary sources of revelation that writ large that God has, has put a ton, everything he has into it, if you will, so that you and I can get to know him. The first is, in fact, the Bible. Can you say the Bible? Let me just say a word about this unique, incredible text that we refer to as the Bible. It's composed of 66 different books attributed to 40 different authors. It was written over a course of a thousand years. It, it has, it's written in three different languages uh, on three different continents. The whole Bible has been translated into more than 700 languages across the globe. And there have been portions of the Bible that has been translated into more than 3,000 languages across the globe. The Old Testament, the Jewish community refers to as the Hebrew Scriptures, contain these incredible, remarkable books that were recorded, copied, preserved, and transmitted, not just across months, but across centuries by rabbis and religious leaders who were uniquely particular. They counted every word. They counted the syllables. They counted the lines. They were uniquely particular. As a matter of fact, uh, in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the West Bank there in Israel in some caves. The scrolls, are among them are the manuscripts that uh, reflect the same material that we find in the Old Testament. But those manuscripts predate what we have in the Old Testament by several centuries. And when we compare the older version to what we have in the biblical text in the Old Testament, the, the, the exactness was astounding. The remarkable attention to detail that was transmitted from century to century. This is God at work in some very unique ways to give us a revelation that contains his word to you and to me. And then the second form of revelation is really his son Jesus, unparalleled. And he, Jesus, we come to know Jesus uniquely through the revelation of Scripture. And as we encounter Jesus and as we engage with the biblical text, come on now, what we are encountering is a God who is desperate to know and be known by you. To love and to be loved by, to be a central part of your life. I don't care who you are. I don't care how you understand yourself to be, how you present. I don't care about your history. I don't care about any of that. If you are listening to me right now, the God of the universe that we know in Jesus is anxious and aching to have a deeply personal relationship with 
the middle school or the high school or the college person, you. The CEO, the, the section, you. The unemployed, you. In your hospital bed, you. In the jail cell, you. And the Bible is one of the means through which he seeks to do that. So listen to what Paul writes, his son, spiritual son, Timothy, in verse 15. He says, listen, dude, you have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. They have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes, here it is, by trusting in Christ Jesus. Look at how he combines those two. He says, you've got the revelation of who God is through Scripture. And you got the revelation of who God is and what he has done to save you and to save the world through his son, Jesus Christ. Those two sources of revelation will make you a transformative figure and position you so that God can love not just you, but can love so many others through you. But I can hear you asking, but how do I know that the Bible is reliable? And I ask to you, I ask you, well, what do you mean is the Bible reliable for what? purpose? To what end? How do you shape that question? Reliable for what? That's the real question, right? Reliable for what? Because the Bible is filled, packed with all kinds of historical details, but it's not a history book. And if you go to it asking historical questions, treating it as a history book, you're going to be sadly disappointed. The Bible is full of observations that both reflect and defy scientific understanding. So if you look to the Bible, to examine the scientific realities, you will be disappointed. It's filled with numbers, guys. But if you try to do algebra and trigonometry and figure that out from the Bible, you will be sadly disappointed. It is not the purpose for which the Bible has been written. The best way to understand what the Bible is about is that it is a remarkable revelation of what we call Theology. Theo represents God. Ology is knowledge that the primary purpose of the Bible is to reveal to the world and to reveal to you, to make accessible to you, come on now, a God that has often been to many so inaccessible uh, is to make you aware of who God is. And so as we read scripture, we see God showing up in history. We see how God shows up in history. We get to experience a sense of God's mind and God's character and God's heart and how God engages and how God loves. We get a sense of God's justice and God's redemptive work all in Scripture. Yes, the Bible is reliable when it comes to revealing unique and unparalleled knowledge about God. Who is God? And it is also pretty unique when it comes to critiquing culture. Yes, the Scriptures emerge in various cultural contexts, and yet because of the unique way the Bible has been written, by the way, it's one story it starts in Genesis from the, and moves all the way through the Revelation. And you and I find ourselves in that story. Come on now. And, and, and one of the insights that we keep refine, discovering in Scripture is that it is, uniquely, uh, it is uniquely informative about human nature in whatever culture. And so it critiques cultures. It tells us what we can look forward to. Listen to how Paul starts his letter to to Timothy. He says, don't be naive. There are difficult times ahead. 
As the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, disrespectful of parents, crude, coarse, dog-eat-dog, unbending, slanderous, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless. Don't that describe the culture you and me live in? And these words was written so long ago. And so shout theology. You know, as I think about this notion of, of how the Bible reveals to us who God is and how we can depend on God and count on God, I think about the story of the old lady who was talking to her kids. And, and the kids say, uh, Grandma, you're always reading the Bible. Uh, uh, how has that shaped your faith? And her response was, listen, I have learned that I can trust God. And if God tells me to get up and walk through that door, I'm going to get up with my cane and start walking. And the kids started laughing. They say, oh, Grandma, Grandma, you got your glasses on. Your Put your glasses on. You pointed at the, at the wall over there. <laughs> there is no door there, Grandma. And she said, I know there's no door there. I know what, what's over there. Come on, this is my house. I didn't say if you told me to get up and start walking. I said if God told me to get up and start walking, I'm going to get my cane. It's my job to start walking, and it's God's job to have a door there when I get there. Come on now. That is about a woman who knows the faithfulness of God. My grandaunt was here. She would tell you that she knows the God who showed up in, uh, in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because back in the late 50s, come on, 1950s, she was in a domestically violent relationship. But the God of the Bible showed up and in that fiery furnace gave her the strength to break free. She would end up being a property owner, a house owner. Come on now, in the 50s and the 60s. And if she would hear, she would say that the God of the Bible is a real God who knows how to make a way out of no way. And what you learn in Scripture, theology, the knowledge of God. Don't just read it, test him. That's what she would say, test him. Good God Almighty. Now, let me give you five truths real quick about Scripture for you to reflect on as you think about this question of, is the Bible reality now that we focused you? Is it reliable uh, to reveal God? Is it reliable to teach us about who we are and who God wants us to be with him? Well, first of all, number one, it's God breathed. Notice what uh, Paul writes here. Here's the message version. Every part, can you say every part? Every part, even the boring part, every part, or even the bad part, the ugly part, every part of Scripture is God-breathed. You see, what you've got to understand, this is a remarkable language, God-breathed. It is suggesting that, 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 that in the process of the evolution of the biblical text, that the breath of God was at work facilitating life and creativity. It's, it's reminiscent, God breathed, two words, God breathes, blows, if you will. It's reminiscent of Genesis 2-7, where it says that God created man in the, sh in the dust and left the form of man there. But then he breathed 
into man, and, and, and that dirt became a living soul. It's remarkable. The suggestion is this, that when God breathes into the natural, come on now, the supernatural takes place. And it might even suggest this, that every time you and I take a breath in and out, it's not, it feels natural, but really what's going on is the supernatural work of God in your life and my life. Can you say God breathe? Oh, yes. God breathe. And it is, it is through the breathing of God that the Word of God, can you say Word of God? That's how we refer to the Bible, the Word of God, that Word that was brought into existence. All the way the biblical writers call it the Word of the Lord. Let me give you some examples real quickly. This notion of what it looks like when God breathes and the word begins to form in those who are writing. And they are not just writing history. Come on now. They, they, they are not just recording details. But under the unction of the Holy Spirit, come on now, the breath of God, they are also reflecting and teaching. But now here we see the recording of these details. Watch this. Repeated thrust throughout Scripture. After these, Genesis 15, 1, after these things, Genesis writer writes, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Again, in Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5, Jeremiah's writing his own autobiography, uh, and, and he records what happens. He's around 17, 18 years old, the part that he's writing about now. And he says this, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart, and I appointed you as a prophet to the nation. And you just see this repeated, that these folk who are writing in Genesis and Exodus and the Psalms and Jeremiah and Isaiah, come on now, they're not just recording. There is an unction, there's a move of God on them, even in the midst of their brokenness. And as they pen what we now read, the Spirit of God is at work. As a matter of fact, and as you read it, if you read it with faith, you might discover that the Holy Spirit gets in Oh, my God, gets in between you and the reading. And suddenly, what seemingly does not make sense comes to life to you because it's God breathed. Wow. Can you say God breathed? And then it moves from the word of the Lord that came. You know, Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. You know, Habakkuk, the burden of the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Habakkuk. You just see it again and again. It moves from what was it that caused the people to write and to record to the word of the Lord coming in the form of a person. John, who lived with Jesus for three years, who was at his crucifixion, who was the, one of the early ones to see an empty tomb who encountered him on the other side of the resurrection. Here's what he writes, John 1, 1, 2, 3. In the beginning was the word. Now, when he writes that to the Greek culture that surrounded him, they thought about the organizing principle of all life. 
but to the Jewish people. <laughs> the moment he said in the beginning was the word, they reflected back to the writings of the great prophet. And, and whenever and they, they could remember uh, and, 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 and the word of the Lord came to me. And so now they're making a connection that the, that the word that came, oh, y'all ain't listening, <laughs> is the same one that shows up in Jesus. Here's what he writes. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. He's talking about Jesus, y'all. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John is reflecting back. He says, this is what I discovered about him. And then verse 14, he writes this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And we saw the glory with our own eyes. John says, I was there. I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. The one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous. That means grace inside and out, true from start to finish. The ultimate revelation. The ultimate revelation of God comes in the person of his son, Jesus Paul links that in this particular text. You know, there are contemporary examples of the Word of God, God breathing all around us throughout history and all around us even now, y'all. Come on. Uh, you remember the story of John Newton. He was a slave owner, and he was on a slave trip uh, transporting slaves to, to, to be sold. And in the middle of the ocean, God breathed on him. Suddenly his eyes came open. He was deeply convicted as he heard the the humming of the slaves in the bow of the ship, and he took the tune that he heard and come forth from that tune because God breathed, came the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once, John Newton said, was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, he writes, but now I see. And God transformed him from a slave trader to one who would fight to end slavery. The word of the Lord came. Come on now. Fanny C. Crosby was a, a young a woman who was blind at an early age, and yet God would breathe on her, and she would give birth to most of the great hymns of the early church, hymns like Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God. And she would write, this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Listen, whenever you look around, come on now, and you see creativity in art, and you hear it in music, come on, uh, uh, and you see it all around, uh, and, it's, it's, and, and it aligns itself with life and light and goodness, you, you are more than likely witnessing God breathing all around making the natural incredibly supernatural. And yet, it is uniquely preserved in the canon that we call the Bible. Trustworthy. So number one, Scripture is God-breathed. Number two, every part, can you say every part? The boring part, the ugly part, all that. Every part of Scripture is useful for the purposes of God. Look what the writer writes in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes these words. Uh, it's all it's useful one way or the other, Paul writes, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, 
training us to live God's way. Can you say every part? Even the boring parts. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, the first 18 verses is the lineage of Jesus. It's easy to mistake that for just boring. But I told you, every, every, the, the, the folk who are pinning and telling the details under the unction of the Spirit, they are not just writing and recording. They're also teaching. And, and, and what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit has positioned what we find in the biblical text as incredible teaching moments. And so, for example, what looks boring, the larger context of that uh, 18 verses is to suggest that Jesus is tied to the royalness uh, uh, of David and works his way 42 generations from Abraham all the way down through David into his birth. But in the details, there's some remarkable lessons. Just look at the lives of some of the folks. Let me lift three. Come on now, real quickly. David. David is described to be a man after God's own heart. And yet, Scripture will tell us that he uh, misused his authority and power. It was a me too moment, y'all. Come on now. And took advantage of Bathsheba. And to cover it up, the adultery, he had her husband killed. It is a reminder that even godly people can do ungodly things. Come on now. Tamar is in that lineage. She uh, was, was, was treated unjustly by her father-in-law. Then she disguises herself and tricks him into having sex with her. She becomes impregnated in order to gain an advantage over him. Come on. It is a reminder that the injustices of life, come on, can sometimes trick us into scandalous behavior. And, and, and then there's Uriah's wife. That's Bathsheba. That's, how, that's what he's talking about. Come on. Here she is taking advantage of uh, and yet she's in the lineage. And, and part of what the Holy Spirit and the writer is teaching us is that they're all in the lineage of Jesus. Come on now. And what he's saying is that for those of us who've gotten on the wrong track, the godly doing the ungodly, the, those of us who have scandals in the back parts of our lives, that those of us who have been misused and abused, that God wraps us up in his redemptive work through the power of Jesus. Come on now. And he can still transform, he can still heal, he can still elevate, he can still empower and make you his. How can you just simply say every part, say every part, every part of Scripture is useful. And then number three, reveals Scripture what's true and trustworthy. And here's what Paul says. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us, watch this, what is true, what can be trusted. I talked to you about the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. Let me just talk to you about the, the Gospels. Because all of the Bible from the Christian standpoint moves towards the person of Jesus Christ, the ultimate revelation. And the question is, is what the scriptures tell us about Jesus, is it trustworthy, is it true? That, that because if it is, nothing else matters. Watch this. One of my favorite books, and I commend it to you, is The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, written by uh, uh, the late uh, Tim Keller. He takes on this question, is the gospel, are the gospels legend or truth? And he points out that uh, in, in literature, for example, Alexander the Great, his biography, the contemporary information that was used was separated by almost 400 years from his actual life. A lot of room for legend to occur. 
Oh, but here's what he says about the Gospels that tell us about who Jesus is. He says the Gospels was written at most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. Paul's letter, which we're looking at now in this particular teaching, was written 15 to 25 years after the death of Jesus. And so they outlined the events of Jesus' life that is found in the Gospels. In the biblical accounts of Jesus' life, uh, in the biblical accounts of Jesus' life were written down within the lifetimes, the lifetimes of hundreds who had been present at the event of his ministry. They were still around to attest to the miracles, to attest to his teaching. Luke says in chapter 1 that he got his material from eyewitnesses who were still alive. Mark says that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross was the father of Alexander and Rufus. In other words, what Mark is saying is you can go to their house, knock on their door, and they will confirm this story. And, 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 and it goes on to say that perhaps even more powerful, more compelling is the indication of, of authenticity is the fact that officials... Opponents of Jesus, bystanders, were still alive and would have been anxious to contradict the gospel. What was told about Jesus, his life, his death, his teaching, his miracles, his resurrection. But rather than there being a massive contradiction, there comes a massive explosion. And in 200 years, the gospel and the Christian community has overtaken the Roman Empire. Ah. Can I trust Scripture when it tells me who Jesus is and what he did for me and how he conquered death? The answer is a resounding yes. And the fourth truth we find is it reveals, the Scripture reveals what is wrong in our lives. It becomes a magnifying glass, guys, and it examines our lives and shows us what is wrong in our lives and teaches us, this is what Paul writes, teaches us to do what is right. Now, let me just teach this uh, insight this way. Oftentimes, you run across places in Scripture that is confusing and maybe uh, to some degree, and some people find certain parts of Scripture offensive, and uh, uh, and they respond that way. Let me suggest that when that happens, that there are three ways for you, uh, three, three things for you to work through. First is, look at the specific context of the verse of verses, the cultural, the literary context. Second is, look at that selection of passage of Scripture in the larger scope of the larger teaching of Scripture. Third, and let me just stop there. So for some people, they feel like Paul has been... Uh, created gender roles that was without equity as it relates to women. But when you look at the larger sweep of what Paul wrote, he wrote about Priscilla and Aquila, and he would normally list the wife first, demonstrating her leadership role in that partnership of ministry. When, he, when, he, when, when the men really wrote to him uh, and from the church of Ephesus and said, you know, these women, they, they, they've, they've come to Jesus and now they won't, they won't, they won't, they act like we, they can't be our property anymore. Paul writes to them something incredibly counterculture. He says, well, let me just tell you this. All right, wives, uh, 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 submit, give up ground. That's what the word means. Uh, that is rightfully yours to your husbands as if you would to Christ. And the husband went, yay, 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 yay. But then Paul says, keep reading. And husbands, you've got to make it safe. So here's what I'm saying to you. You love your wives like Christ loved the church 
and gave himself, was crucified for him. So your priority, come on, your dreams, your stuff, you crucify that and elevate the woman in your life. Come on now, totally counterculture. And at the end of the day, it's mutual submission and husbands, you lead and then the wife can follow. You see, context matters. But then we may work through that and still find something that is offensive and we can't really fully understand it and all of this. Well, let me suggest one more thing. Perhaps that scripture is a scripture designed to correct you or stretch you. You remember, here's what Paul wrote. The scripture is also about exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. And here I'll just quickly quote what Kim Teller writes. I think he says it beautifully. He says, listen, to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible teaching is offensive to you assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. Does that belief make sense, he writes. He goes on to write, now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibilities and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? I mean, can we just acknowledge that our biases and, and our preferences are shaped by our hurts and our pains and our perspective and culture? Isn't it possible that God might disagree with us every now and then and it might surface through this word? And notice what Tim writes here. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in real friendships or marriages, Will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination? And then he writes this. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition to it. Can God have a personal relationship with you? Would you dare to lean in towards God's word that comes through scripture and that is revealed in Jesus. And may Jesus, might you, let me suggest this. Many of us want Jesus to be Savior, but we don't want him to be Lord. But it's only when he's Savior and Lord. It's only when he's Lord that he's ultimately Savior. You have to trust him even when he disagrees with you. Wow, God. Here's the fifth point as we wrap this up. Scripture prepares us for the work of God and equips us with the hope of God. Here's what Paul writes. Through the word, we are put together and shaped up for the task God has for us. I told you last week that, 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 that next, this coming weekend, next weekend, we're not going to gather in our buildings in San Jose and in River City. No, 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 no. We're going to worship God by going into the streets. We're going in four different locations doing those, doing all day. I mean, the, the first part of Sunday, y'all. Come on, this is going to be on Sunday, and we're going to work in the Tenelons and help people who are trying to reboot their lives. We're going to be people of compassion. We're going to bless folk. We're going to work in San Jose and help renovate and refurbish homes so that uh, women who are escaping domestic violence along with their kids can have a safe place to go and, uh, and with wraparound services to get them back on their feet. We're going to show up at a local school that has, come on now, uh, uh, incredible leadership but low resources. And we're going to do inside that school that things that they can't manage to do for themselves. Uh, we're going to be the people of God in the city, y'all. And if you're not local, 
Uh, you could, we're going to still have a worship gathering. You're going to hear good teaching. But if you go to our website, come on now, uh, you'll be able to sign up to serve wherever you are. So here's my, here's, here's, here's my challenge. Come on. We practice doing, being the people of God once a year. So you see it on the screen. I want you to sign up. If you have not signed up, hear me, San Jose. If you have not signed up yet, I need you to sign up. Hear me, those of you who are going to college, if you have not signed up, I need you to sign up. Let us go. Come on now. Across all of our diversity bound together by the Jesus who showed up and died for us and conquered death and now empowers us, come on now to be the presence of his unconditional love in the world, let us go come on now, because for some people we're going to be the only Bible, Bible they read wow so let us go let me end here so I end with this question. Will you let God have a personal relationship with you? He has come through the concrete one known as his son Jesus that has been anchored in the teachings of Scripture. Will you let him be Lord? Will you let him be Savior? I want to challenge you to pray this prayer with me right now. You can pray it out loud if you're comfortable. Lord Jesus, I trust you. I believe you're the son of God. I believe that you died on Calvary's cross for my sins. I believe that you conquered death. And I surrender my life to you right now. I make you Lord. And I invite you to be Lord and Savior. And I receive you. Amen. Congratulations. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time, and if you're watching this message before November 18, I want you to go ahead and sign up to be baptized. Uh, and maybe you've already been baptized some number of years ago. Maybe you were a kid being baptized. You say, you know what? I want to renew that commitment. Go ahead and sign up to be baptized. And we'd love to baptize you on November the 18th. And uh, if you're not local, we'd love to facilitate your baptism. And I want to welcome and congratulate all of you who said yes to the God who in Jesus had already said yes to you. You can have a personal relationship, and it just started now. God bless you.